Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist Church. It's good to be with you this morning in worship. I would encourage you to uh, fill out the attendance pads that you will find at the end of each of the pews and pass those along to others that are with you uh, this morning. Uh, welcome to those who are worshiping online. We're glad that you have uh, joined us in worship this morning as well. The announcements are on your bulletin insert and uh, a few that I want to call to your attention. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and so we will have our Ash Wednesday service uh, here in the sanctuary at 7 o'clock this Wednesday evening. You're invited to that. I hope that you will come and join us as we enter into the season of Lent in worship this Ash Wednesday. March uh, 13th, Sunday, March 13th is our next uh, family church night, and it's going to be a mystery night. We're going to have a, a mystery game for everybody that comes, and it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope you'll come and join us for dinner and for the game uh, that evening on March 13th. You don't need to bring anything. Everything's going to be provided, so come and join your church family as we uh, celebrate uh, fellowship with one another that evening. And then Saturday, March 19th is the uh, women's prayer breakfast. And uh, the tickets for that are on sale now. You may have seen them out in the narthex this morning uh, selling tickets. Uh, and they'll be out there after the service as well. So make sure that you stop by and get your tickets for the uh, Women's Prayer Breakfast, which is on Saturday, March 19th. We come together this morning to worship God. And so I invite you into a spirit of worship as the choir presents the music of the introits. stand as you are able and join in the call to worship. We have needed the light of Christ. We have seen the light of God. We have felt the light of the Spirit. Let us worship God. Remain standing and turn in your hymnals to number 73. We will sing verses 1, 2, and 5 O Worship the King.
Please be seated and join me in the opening prayer. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, ever faithful to your promises and ever close to your church, the earth rejoices in the hope of the Savior's coming and looks forward with longing to his return at the end of time. Prepare our hearts and remove the sadness that hinders us from feeling the joy and hope which has presence will bestow, for he is Lord forever and ever. Amen. You may remain seated and turn to His Name is Wonderful, number 174 in your hymn book. His name is wonderful, and we come into his presence to offer our worship and our praise, and also to offer our prayers. And so I invite us now into a time of silence as we offer our prayers and petitions to the Lord. God of all creation, and sovereign of every nation, hear us as we cry out to you for a broken and hurting world, and especially as we cry out to you this morning for the people in Ukraine, for families torn apart by war, for livelihoods that are put on hold, for lives that are in danger, we call upon your mercy. Shelter them under your wings of grace. We ask for courage, strength, and success for all those who stand against the evil powers of this world that place wealth and might over human life and dignity. Lord, for those whose hearts are set on 
dominance and destruction. We pray for a miraculous conversion leading to repentance. Lead us to repentance as well, Lord. For any time that we have been apathetic to the plight and the pain of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, for any time we have harbored hate within our own hearts, for any time that we have entertained selfish ambition that would take away from others, for it is these things that lead to war. Cleanse our minds and our hearts of all sin. Give us the faith and the resolve to seek and to work for the kind of justice and love that leads to peace. Lead us in the ways of Jesus, that those near to us and those around the world might see in us the grace and salvation you offer in him. We pray these things in his precious and holy name as we offer to you now the prayer he has taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We continue in our worship by presenting God with our tithes and our offerings as the ushers wait upon us. Please join me in the prayer of dedication in your bulletin. Lord Jesus, 
You gave your life that we might know the fullness of God's love for us. In your spirit of compassion and humility, we make this offering. In your example of love and mercy, let us serve those in need in your name. Receive and bless our giving, we pray. Amen.
Thank you, choir, for that beautiful message in psalm. The scripture lesson is in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 19 through four, verses 9 through 14. It's on the back of your bulletin. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Amen. Amen. Chapter 7 of Daniel is where the book kind of takes a turn. Up to this point, the book has been uh, historical stories about Daniel and his three friends. The stories range from the time of his late teens, when Daniel was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, right up to somewhere around age 90 when he was saved from the lion's den under the rule of Darius the Mede and King Cyrus of Persia. The handful of stories told in those six chapters show the resiliency of the Jews and their faithfulness to the God of Judah throughout the time of the exile in Babylon. The faithful remnant of the Jews, represented in Daniel and his friends, suffered the attacks of cruel and ungodly kings, were surrounded by pagan culture, and faced the threat of death on many occasions. Yet they remained true to God through it all. And through it all, God remained faithful to them, protecting them and rewarding them for their faith. Beginning with chapter 7 and through the rest of the book, we are no longer being told stories. Now we are being shown visions visions that Daniel received from God near the end of his life. Following a lifetime of struggle against ungodly powers and keeping the faith, Daniel was given this series of visions of of things that were yet to come, where this whole struggle was leading, how it would all play out. The basic message of all these visions to Daniel was that the struggle had been worth it. Daniel wouldn't see it all play out in his lifetime, but he was shown these visions 
that God would remain true to his word, that the faithful would be redeemed, that keeping the faith would be rewarded. And Daniel wrote these visions down because he knew this message was not for him alone, that God wanted everyone of all generations to know that the struggle is worth it, that God will remain true to his word, that the faithful of all generations will be redeemed. God has a plan. The Lord is in control. He is supreme and sovereign over all the powers of this world. Worldly kingdoms, mighty and terrifying as they may be to those who have to endure their wrath for a time, those kingdoms appear as nothing when compared to the eternal Lord of heaven and earth. Their power comes and goes. His power is forever. Their hold on this world is limited to a specified number of days. His hold over all creation is eternal. That is the overall message of these visions and of the entire book. Although the focus shifts in chapter 7 from stories to visions, there is continuity throughout all the book. There were visions within the stories of the first six chapters, and there are stories within the visions of the last six chapters. And they all point to the same reality, the sovereignty of God, and the ultimate redemption of all those who remain faithful to God. Chapter 7 is kind of the linchpin that holds both sections of the book together. It's also the chapter where we find the first explicit reference to Christ. There were hints of Christ earlier in the book, like the fourth man in the fiery furnace who protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames, who Nebuchadnezzar said looked like a son of the gods. But it is in Daniel's visions, beginning with this chapter, that it becomes clear he is seeing the Christ who will come to save all of God's faithful. Chapter 7 begins by setting this vision in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon. It's it's impossible to put an exact date on that year since, as we saw when we looked at chapter 5, Belshazzar was a regent king appointed to that role by his father, Nabonid. We don't know exactly when that took place. It could have been as early as 14 years before the conquest of Babylon or as late as just a few years before the conquest. It was certainly later in Daniel's life. Nebuchadnezzar had been dead for many years, perhaps a decade or more. Daniel had been highly respected by Nebuchadnezzar, but with a couple changes in leadership having taken place and many years having gone by, Daniel had kind of been forgotten. You could say he was in a period of first retirement. It must have troubled Daniel to see what was going on around him, There had been great hope near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign that perhaps the God of Judah might also become the God of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, in his last testament, had proclaimed God as the Most High and the King of Heaven. He had said his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. But Nebuchadnezzar had not torn down the idols of Babylon. He had not reversed the pagan worship practices. A couple decades went by and his testimony to God had been all but forgotten. When Belshazzar came to to power, he was just as pagan and perverse as any king who had gone before him. Daniel must have wondered, is this the way 
it will always be? And if so, what's the purpose of this all? What's the point of the struggle? He must have had moments when he thought that that the faithfulness of himself and the rest of the faithful remnant of the Jews would be lost to history. After several decades of faithful struggle in Babylon, doing exactly what God had directed them to do, praying for Babylon and its rulers, working loyally for the kings and the people of Babylon in everything that didn't go against their faith, and staying faithful to God by resisting the powers that be whenever those powers did try to lead them away from God. After several decades of living faithfully in a faithless world, there was no indication that any of this was going anywhere. That was the situation when Daniel was given this first vision. The vision given to Daniel in chapter 7 speaks to the very same thing as the dream that that Daniel had interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar so many decades before, back in chapter 2. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream of a statue. Its head was of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron with feet being mixed of iron and clay. Daniel was shown that the... Daniel was shown the king's dream and its interpretation. The four sections of the statue represented four nations. Now, decades later, Daniel is given his own dream in which he sees four terrible beasts coming up from the sea. Keep in mind that in visions such as we find in the book of Daniel, as well as in the book of Revelation and some other places in the Bible, Everything in the vision is symbolic. If you, if you start to take the vision too literally, you miss the point of it. What Daniel saw in the vision was four beasts rising up from the sea. That doesn't mean that in the end times, four literal beasts, looking like the beasts of this vision, will come up out of a literal sea. All of these images represented something. Daniel knew that. But Daniel didn't know what they represented, which is interesting. The fact that Daniel didn't know what they represented when you consider the fact that in the first half of the book, Daniel is the one who interprets everyone else's dreams and visions, but Daniel was not able to interpret his own, even when his own first vision represented the very same thing as Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. But considered more closely, that's really not all that strange at all. Daniel had made it clear to Nebuchadnezzar that he was not coming up with these interpretations himself. God was the one giving the interpretation. And so it is with his own visions. Daniel could not determine for himself what they meant. He had to be told. Within the vision itself, Daniel says that he approached one of the attendants to ask what this all meant. The attendants would be those angels, those who were worshiping at the throne of God in heaven. And one of those angels told Daniel what the images of his dream meant. The four beasts that he saw were four kingdoms of the earth. The same four kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar had seen, represented by the statue in his dream. To the king, they appeared as a statue of various kinds of metal, standing over the whole world. To Daniel, they appeared as terrifying beasts rising from the sea. Metal is known mainly for two things, its material value and its strength. Different kinds of metal are compared to each other based on how durable they are and how valuable they are. That's what matters to the kings and the rulers of this world, wealth and power. 
That's why the king saw the four kingdoms as four kinds of metal, because that's what he was concerned with and what every earthly kingdom is concerned with, wealth and power. But Daniel saw these four kingdoms as four beasts. Because that is what they truly are. That is how they appear to the people who they crush and and persecute and, and trample and use in order to acquire for themselves the wealth and the power that they so covet. The kingdoms of this world, and not just the four kingdoms of this vision, but all the kingdoms of this world are beasts that will do anything, that will destroy anything, that will use anyone to get what they want. That's what we see going on right now as Russia attacks Ukraine with a blatant and disgusting disregard for human life and human rights, with a vain and arrogant attitude of entitlement to simply take the wealth and power that they want, using tanks and bombs to mow down anyone who would stand against the ungodly attack. I'm not suggesting that Russia or any other modern nation is one of the beasts named specifically in the book of Daniel, but the attitude is the same. It's the very same motivation. It shows the depths of human depravity that have always been at the heart of what goes on on the world stage. Now to the four nations that are represented in the book of Daniel. The first is obvious, it's Babylon. Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar, that the head of gold was himself, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. In Daniel 7, he is shown as a lion with the wings of an eagle. The lion is considered the king of all land creatures. The eagle is the king of all birds. Nebuchadnezzar was referred to even by Daniel as king of kings. He was the supreme ruler of all the world. No one had ever come before him that controlled more territory or held more authority. Babylon was the first of what could rightly be referred to as a world power, a lion with eagle's wings. Verse 4, then, is probably a reminder to Daniel of what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. The eagle's wings were clipped, just as Nebuchadnezzar had been cut off and brought low because he had grown so haughty. But then in the vision, the lion, a beast of the field, was made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Just as Nebuchadnezzar, after living some time as a beast of the field, was restored to his right mind and stature. This first beast represented things that had already taken place. The Babylonian kingdom was still in control, and the kingdom was dragging on and only getting worse. But the worst was yet to come. A second beast arose that looked like a a bear that was raised up on one side. This is the Median slash Persian kingdom. Some modern interpreters consider the second beast to be Media and the third beast Persia, but that's a misguided interpretation based on several false assumptions, none of those assumptions coming from the actual text of Daniel. Throughout the book, Daniel consistently refers to Media Persia as one kingdom. Remember last week, those who were laying a trap for Daniel kept referring to the law of the Medes and Persians. Darius the Mede was serving as king in the region of Babylonia under Cyrus, the king of Persia. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision in which there is a ram with two horns, and he is specifically told that the two horns 
are the kings of Media and Persia, but it's a single ram. In all of Daniel, Media and Persia is a single nation, and so it is here. He sees the bear raised up on one side, indicating that the Persian side ruled over the Median side. Indeed, Persia had risen up over Media, and rather than defeating or destroying it, had absorbed Media within itself. The Persians originated from a mountainous region. Babylon had been very refined and civilized. Persia was more unrefined and wild, much like wild bears that can come into a civilized area and terrorize it by their sheer strength. Wild Persia overtook the civilization of Babylon. In the king's dream, this had been the chest and arms of silver. Silver is stronger than gold, but also less valuable. The bear had three ribs in its mouth, and it was told to devour many bodies. These three ribs could represent the three other nations conquered by Persia, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. Or they could simply represent the insatiable nature of the Median Persian Empire, devouring all that it could get its paws on. Indeed, Persia controlled more land than any empire before it. If Babylon had been the first world power, Persia took that to the next level and then some. But even Persia would not last. The third beast to arise appeared as a leopard. This is the Greco-Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great. It's represented as a leopard because Alexander was known for the great speed at which he conquered the world. He seemed to come out of nowhere, and, and within just a matter of years, he had dominated the entire world. Indeed, it was this swiftness of attack that gave him his success, just as a leopard depends on its great speed to capture, capture its prey. But as swiftly as Alexander the Great conquered the world, just as swiftly he exited the scene, dying before he could really enjoy the fruits of his conquest. Over the next several years, the, the Greek Empire was divided between four primary rulers. Daniel sees this third beast has four wings and four heads. The four wings represent the four directions in which the empire moved, and, and the four heads bring the, being the four rulers who, who divided the kingdom, Cassander over Macedonia and Greece, Antagonus over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus I over Syria and the east, Ptolemy I over Egypt and North Africa. The battle between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies would play out in the Holy Land in years to come and would give rise to a truly terrible ruler, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who we will see represented next week in chapter 8 as the little horn of the male goat who causes great and fearful destruction. There's a little horn in this chapter as well. The fourth beast that came up from the sea had ten horns, but then another horn, a little one, came up among them and replaced three of them. The fact that there is a little horn who does great and terrible things in both chapter 7 and 8, and that he speaks arrogantly in both, has led some interpreters to believe that this is the same person represented in both chapters. That's why some modern interpreters insist that the second beast is Media, and the third beast is Persia, and the fourth beast is Greece, because Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes was Greek, and the little horn grew out of the fourth beast. But that's a, a confusion of these two, two visions. It's not founded in the text. As I already 
indicated, Media and Persia is always represented in Daniel as one nation. The third beast clearly fits with Greece, the leopard showing the speed of Alexander the Great, and the four heads being the four rulers who divided the nation after his demise. The fourth beast is one that arises after Greece. So the little horn of this chapter must be a different person than the one in the next. And I wish I could tell you with certainty who the fourth beast here is, but the truth of it is I've been studying this and studying this and studying this, and I still don't know. Since this fourth beast follows Greece, it's natural to assume that it's Rome. That's how it's been interpreted throughout most of church history. There are a couple of problems with that, though. The main one being there isn't anything in Roman history that lines up with Daniel's vision of this fourth beast. The ten horns, which are ten kings, and the little horn that grows up to replace three of the first horns. There have been all kinds of attempts to say who within the Roman Empire is represented by these ten horns and the little horn. I have to tell you, though, when you read those explanations side by side with what Daniel says, they all employ tortured logic to try and make it fit. It just doesn't. And then there's the fact that the fourth beast is entirely destroyed, burned with fire. The other beasts, though they have no power, continue to live on in some sense, but not the fourth. The fourth beast is completely eradicated in this vision. That, again, does not line up with history if the fourth beast is indeed Rome. Some explain that by suggesting that the Roman Empire will in some way be reconstituted in the end times or that this isn't Rome at all, but another kingdom which is yet to come. The problem with that is that there isn't any suggestion of delay within the book of Daniel, within this vision. There's nothing in the text itself that places this one part of the vision way off in the future when all of the rest of it was fulfilled in rapid order. The way the vision was presented to Daniel, one comes right after the other. You have to add on suppositions and interpretations on top of what was revealed to Daniel in order to support such a specific theory of the fourth beast as you get in dispensationalist theology. Adding to scripture is always a dangerous thing. The little horn who grows up in the fourth beast is clearly a depiction of what is described elsewhere in scripture as antichrist. He is antichrist. But the scriptures tell us that there are many antichrists. The little horn of chapter 8 is antichrist too. That one is shown in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. This one in chapter 7 is a different antichrist, or perhaps an overarching antichrist. Unfortunately, I can't say more about him than that. I can't tell you who exactly this little horn is, or, or how and when this has or will yet play out. And honestly, I feel bad about that but I simply haven't found any explanation that fits with what the Scripture actually says. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you something that doesn't line up with what is revealed in God's Word. I hope you can at least respect that. What I can tell you, though, what what has been revealed clearly in God's Word is what happens to this Antichrist and what happens ultimately to all the powers of this world that are set in opposition to God. Or... Perhaps I should say, who happens to them? Because that is what is prophesied here in this chapter in Daniel and what is fulfilled in the New Testament. There is someone 
one whom Daniel sees in his vision and calls one like a son of man who wins the ultimate victory over every form of evil, one whose kingdom reigns over and above all the kingdoms of this world, one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall never pass away. Daniel says that as he watched the vision play out in his dream, he saw thrones set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his place on his throne. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was pure, like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. This is, of course, God that he is seeing. But again, this is not a literal depiction. Just as the beasts arising from the sea are symbolic representations, so too is this. The point is not that God is an old man with long white hair sitting on a flaming throne that has wheels on it. Ancient of days means that God is beyond time. Before days came into existence, God already was. The clothing, white as snow, indicates God's perfection and purity. His hair, like pure wool, portrays his great wisdom. The throne shows that God is sovereign overall, and the fiery flames show that God's sovereignty includes God's justice. God is coming in judgment, both to destroy the evil and to refine the faithful. The wheels on the throne correspond to the wheels of Ezekiel's vision, where the Spirit of God was in the wheels as they traveled with God's people. God is omnipresent. Everywhere you could possibly go, God is there. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. Remember King Belshazzar from chapter 5? He sat upon his throne partying with his 1,000 attendants. 1,000 attendants sounded impressive. Until you find out that God has 10,000 times 10,000 attendants at his throne, Belshazzar pales in comparison. In fact, he almost disappears in comparison. That is the point. God's kingdom so far exceeds any earthly kingdom that there is no comparison. As Daniel watched, he heard the arrogant words of the little horn that arose from the fourth beast. And while he watched, that beast was put to death and its body destroyed with fire. The fourth beast was completely eradicated. And then Daniel says, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The rest of the beasts, meaning the first three, remained, but with no power. The first three kingdoms were conquered, but the people of those kingdoms were not wiped out. They lived on. The Babylonians were incorporated into the Median Persian Empire. The Medes and Persians were incorporated into the Greco-Macedonian Empire. The Greeks were incorporated into the Roman Empire. In fact, Greek culture and Greek language continued to predominate far into New Testament times, even though the kingdom was no more. Not so with the fourth beast. The fourth beast is completely destroyed. That's what makes this part of the vision so hard to line up with past history and so intriguing in terms of what might come about in the future. What comes next, though, is clear and powerful. 
I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Back in the time that this vision was given to Daniel, that term son of man was used simply to mean human. I saw one like a human being. The figure that Daniel saw looked like a human. But the term very soon came to mean much more than simply human. As the vision goes on, and with the visions yet to come in Daniel, it becomes clear that this one, like a son of man, is in fact the Messiah. And largely because of Daniel's visions, son of man came to be seen as a title for the Messiah. And it is one of the most common titles that Jesus applied to himself. Keep in mind, though, that Jesus had not yet come in the flesh. It would be another 500 years from the time of this vision before Jesus would be born on earth. But Daniel saw him in his vision as one like a son of man because that is who he is, the truly human one, the one who fulfills all of God's intentions for humankind the one who is the pinnacle and the salvation of all humanity. Daniel says he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him. There are two ways in which Christ was presented to the Father. First, the Son was presented to the Father on the cross, a sacrificial offering of atonement. Just as the Jewish people had for centuries presented their sacrifices to God on the altar of the Jerusalem temple, likewise Jesus presented himself to God on the cross as the single perfect, worthy sacrifice that would take the place of all other sacrifices for all time. Second, Christ was presented to God at his ascension. Before leaving his disciples and ascending into heaven, Jesus told them, I go to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. When the resurrected Christ rose up into heaven, the Son was once again presented to the Father, triumphant over death, victorious over sin. Christ had remained faithful to the end. He had won the victory over sin and death. He reconciled God's people with our God. And then he ascended into heaven where he was presented to the Ancient of Days and was given his place on the throne next to the Father, just as Daniel saw in this vision. In the next verse, Daniel sees and hears the Messiah being given dominion over all things. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Indeed, this vision of Daniel is echoed in Paul's letter to the Philippians, writing about the fulfillment of these things in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should, be, should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the vision given to Daniel of the Christ. 500 years before it all came to pass in Jesus. The message that he gained from this and the message that he passed on to others by writing this vision down is that all of the nations of this world are as nothing. One rule passes to another, which in turn passes to another, and on and on they go, but eventually God brings them all to justice. Even an evil as terrifying as Antichrist does not have any power beyond what is allowed him by God for a set amount of time, which God will bring to an end. Praise God. The powers of this world, they can be frightening at times. Indeed, they are seen as terrible beasts. They do severe damage. They can cause great harm. They can even bring about widespread death. But they can only kill the body. They cannot separate us from God. The only thing that could ever separate us from God is sin, and Christ has already dealt with that on the cross. For those who are faithful, the war has been won by God through His Son. The one who was shown to Daniel like a son of man before the ancient of days. The message of Daniel to his compatriots in the exile was clear. Your faithfulness matters. The message to us and to anyone who reads this word of God is clear. Your faithfulness matters. Keep up the faith. Keep up the fight. God is sovereign. God is faithful. Remain true to Him and He will remain true to you. No matter what dangers you face in this life, no matter what trials are before you, no matter what tribulations come against you, no matter what the worldly powers try to do to you, stay true to God and your faithfulness will be rewarded. There is no doubt about it. It is already written in heaven. 500 years before it happened, Daniel saw the one who would win the victory. And we have seen him too. We have seen him throughout the New Testament. We have seen him in our church. We have seen him in our very own lives. We know who he is. We know what he wants from us. He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants our souls. He, he wants all of our strength to go towards serving Him, praising Him, proclaiming Him with our lips and with our lives. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. And our salvation, our future for eternity is safe with him. Thanks be to God. Amen. I invite you to stand as you are able for our closing hymn, which is in the hymnals at number 715. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Mm -hmm. 
please be seated. The victory has already been won. God is upon his throne. Our salvation is secure in the, the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ. Go in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Cool. 